those scenes with Mon Mothma and Tay in episode seven, I was just living for them. It was meaty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was some meaty Mothma time. <laughs> and uh, well, that's I, the title I really of the want episode. The meaty Mothma hour. <laughs> meaty Mothma time. God, the more I say it, the more disgusting. Yeah, it's not. I'm <laughs> gross. <laughs> everyone to Krypton to Alderaan. I'm Joey and I'm here with returning guest Scotty Holiday. Hi Scotty. Hi Joey. Thank you so much for having me back and I am so excited to talk some more Andor with you. Awesome. Me too. So last time Scotty was on we talked about the premiere of Andor episodes one through three. Now we're back to talk about episodes four through six. We're doing our own little three episode arcs here. But yeah, how are you doing Scotty? All is good. I'm just excited for all this content we're about to start getting. Yeah, we are on the cusp of more Andor, um, which I think we're excited about. And also Tales of the Jedi, which as we we were discussing off air, we're excited about, but will um, end up in a lot of work for, well, especially <laughs> you. I just have to talk about it, but. You know, I mean, sometimes I just talk about it. It depends if I feel like getting on camera that day. (laughs) Well, that's a good point. Can you refresh, uh, remind us all who you are and what you do? Of course. My name is Scotty Holiday. My YouTube channel is Scotty Holiday 2. I do videos on Star Wars breakdowns, theories, speculations. Sometimes I do kind of video essays as well. Just depends on what's on my mind. I'm a queer creator, and I always try to bring a little bit of a queer perspective into any of the content that I put out, especially, well, with my Star Wars content. Perfect. Awesome. So, like I said, we are going to be talking about Andor episodes four through six. I'd like to kind of focus on what stood out for us in each episode, what we really connected with, maybe some stuff we picked up on in repeat viewing. I think really some of the best stuff about this show is the connections and parallels and interpretations that we're able to make, not only based on our Star Wars smarts, but like based on political and social happenings that we see in other areas of our lives. So first, I wanted to ask you, Scotty, based on the last conversation we had about the premiere episodes, how it started for you versus how it's going. Well, I think something that a lot of people will agree with is in general with that kind of three episode drop at the beginning. I know when I watched episode four, I enjoyed it so Mm. much, but I was ready for more uh, right off the bat. So I loved the three episode premiere. And I, I do love that each episode is coming out weekly because I'm a I'm very into when shows do weekly drops because I'm not a huge binger. So I do enjoy, you know, the week to week thing. We get to look forward to a new episode each week, and that's exciting for me. But I will say in general, it did leave me wanting a little bit more with episode four. So, so far, I think it started off great and things got heated. Literally, things things got heated. Heated on what I like to call the hot mess express. <laughs> uh, so what? how are you liking the three episode arc, Scotty? How do you feel about that? So for me... I mean, you know this. I don't know if your listeners know, but I am a 
huge Clone Wars fan. Clone Wars series, I mean, it's all about those arcs. Right. So I really love when Star Wars does arcs. And I, I think it also gives a lot more time to flesh out whatever that narrative or story is that they're trying to show within the arc. So I think the arcs work really well. Uh, if we compare it to other Star Wars shows, because we've had Mandalorian, where it's kind of episode of the week as it's been described. Obi-Wan was a overarching story. I guess you could say Book of Boba Fett was a little bit of both, in a sense. But we're not here to talk about those shows. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> After episode four, and that's the thing that I like about weekly drops over you know, multiple episodes or just a whole season drop is that it gives me time to get excited, build up that anticipation, especially if we know, like we learn within this arc, the I guess we'll call it the Aldani arc is we're we're building up to something really big that's going to happen. And we get to see all the planning that goes into it. And I think that's what helps it pay off too. once we see the end of that arc. And and I think that's why I also love weekly drops, like I said before, versus just multiple episode drops or doing things in an arc. I do think that in general, even though I was left wanting more, I was still feeling satisfied after episode four. I'm not going to say fat and satisfied because we'll, we'll get we'll get to that literal moment. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So let's let's start with. Episode four, Aldani. So I just want to say right away, like upon rewatch, thinking about like the pacing of the show, which has become a, a talking point for a lot of people. When I started watching this episode again in preparation of having this conversation, it felt like it was so long ago. Like it felt like so much had happened compared to what where we are now in the series. Obviously, a lot has happened. A lot was packed into those episodes. But it's just incredible to think about how much, how dense the episodes are, paced the way they are with being more character-driven and with being only like 35 minutes long, maybe on average. For me, I do think, kind of just to echo what you said, they pack a lot into 30 to 40 minutes. And I don't even notice myself because I hate to mention, I'm not going to mention any specific other shows, but there have been times where I finished an episode, even outside of Star Wars, and I'm like, oh, that's it. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. <laughs> and with this episode, it laid so much of the groundwork. I mean, we can't deny that knowing what we know now, but it was literally laying the groundwork, getting Cassian integrated in with our group, learning about them and learning a little bit more about Luthen. I think that in general with the pacing, looking at everything now, I think that the pacing works really well. Mm -hmm. I think we get a lot. And, I, and like I said, I don't catch myself thinking, oh, here's another, you know, 36 minute episode with 10 minute credits. Right, <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I think it's working really well with the pacing. So for me, again, on a rewatch, I loved like we get to see Coruscant finally after so many years of not seeing it. And then we get introduced to the Imperial Security Bureau and we get to meet all the characters there. Overall, within the episode, something that stood out to me later was the fact that we get to meet both the, the ISB and 
the rebels slash insurgents in the same episode and like in subsequent scenes the idea that the imperial in the isb very clean very shiny very affluent looking cannot function as a team while the rebels i think vel puts it eating roots and sleeping on rocks are the complete opposite they're functioning as a team they have this plan they're working they might not like it but they're working together and i thought that was just so interesting especially like as we go through the episode diving into maybe more of like the internal workings of the isb so i'm curious i'm curious how you felt i mean in your videos you talked about how excited you were to see coruscant and all that all that stuff being taken back to that planet tell me how you connected with these the meeting these characters and 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 their stories i think you brought up a lot of good points and I, i'm sure that was the purpose of showing you know the different scenes between the isb and the rebel team kind of interlaced throughout the episodes because we really can see one team that's working together that may not always get along but they have one solid goal whereas with the isb we already have lieutenant blevin and dejramiro arguing right off the bat she's trying to get information or she thinks she has jurisdiction because the star path unit was stolen from her base the steer guard naval base and He's just like, no, you're overstepping. You're just trying to grow your career. And as we can see, just in the way Major Partagaz, you know, he goes to one person, he says, what's going on in your sector? Why is this happening? Why is it this way? Fix it. And then let me know. Everybody's assigned their own specific sector. And sure, they have their they have their assistants, but their assistants are just there to basically get them the data that they need. And so it, it seems like it, it's instead of one big team, which is how I feel like the ISB is set up. You know, they're set up in a big circle. Everybody's there. They have their spot. They can all see each other. It's a big open room. You know, it's got plenty of space for discussion. But it's so many people, even though it's one organization, working alone. They've all got their own separate sector. That's what they deal with. And that's all. I will say in general, with the ISB, I know a lot of people were excited for the ISB because it's been featured, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but we've seen more of the ISB in a lot of books and different content outside of, you know, the shows. So I was not really familiar with the ISB going into this at all. I don't think, and don't make fun of me for this, but I don't think that I knew that the ISB was the Imperial Security Bureau. Like, I didn't know what that acronym was. I was just like, oh, the ISB, that's some organization in the Empire. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I learned from this series that that's the Imperial Security Bureau, the ISB. And I'm actually really into just seeing everything that's going on with them. It's honestly, it's not the most exciting thing if you think about it. It's, it's people in their very sterile looking environment. Yeah. They're in their white room. And they're just at work. But I think it's the fact that because they don't work as a team, you've got everybody trying to kind of get one up on the other and outshine somebody to get jurisdiction over something else, get control of another sector, whatever it may be. I think that's what makes them so interesting to watch. I've really enjoyed everything with the ISB so far, and especially with their introduction, because right off the bat, like I said, we've got Dedra trying to get information on the Starpath unit and as soon as she comes into his office she says why didn't you give my assistant the stuff i've requested 
And he's like, because you're overstepping your reach. And this is my thing. This is my sector. So go deal with your own thing and stop trying to just advance your career. Mm. It's literally an organization of people. And right off the bat, as we're introduced to them, they don't work together. You brought up them sitting in a circle. And now that I think about it, that's like a very Arthurian thing, right? The round table. And so everyone can be equal. And then we find out that that's obviously not the case. But with both the way Blevin treats Miro and with Partagaz later saying stuff like, this is why we hire people like you and all of the language that he uses to say, you know, women aren't usually a part of this office. And what a woman should do when she becomes part of this office is maybe be tucked away and not try to do too many things, especially early on. So all of that language Mm. just, and he says Blevin adheres to the more traditional views of who should be working in this place and stuff like that. So I, I caught that. I caught that in my rewatch specifically that the traditional views, I was like, Oh God, here we go. Yeah. So there's obviously (laughs) a lot of like sexist language being used there, which is a real interesting, an interesting juxtaposition to the way that it's physically set up. Yeah, for sure. I I even wonder thinking about it now and talking about it, like I said, I just thought of that traditional line. I'm wondering, does Blevin just not think women should be in the ISB at all? Am I late to this thought? <laughs> I, I, I think that that's what they were getting at in that scene. And maybe that's the sentiment of a lot of the people there. You know, Partagaz, Partagaz says a lot in that scene. He says that and he it seems like he's a little bit on her side. And he says something like you can take the time here to have a like exemplary career. You can you can do much better than everyone else here if you just do it. They're like stay in your lane. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, the Empire organizationally is I mean, wrought with bigotry, right? They don't allow aliens in, you know, Thrawn is the only alien that's allowed in the Empire. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing Miro be one of the first women or the first woman in the ISB kind of thing, but still have to like encounter these hurdles. I, I did want to talk to you more about Miro because I know from your videos that you're you're kind of a Miro stan. You're kind of digging the character. So I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit about the character and what what you find compelling and what you what you think attracts you to that that character well you know i do like to refer to her as my problematic bad girl (laughs) uh (laughs) because even though you know she works for the empire which obviously we know fascism she works for the fascist organization that is trying to take over the galaxy so i don't love that (laughs) but she's been written in such a way that you want to root for Mm -hmm. her i mean just like we mentioned you already see that the ISB as an organization is already setting her, you know, a step back from the norm, I guess you could say. Or, I mean, just put it out there. She's not a man. So they're already thinking of her as, you know, oh, she's going to have to work a little bit harder while she's here. And this sounds so cliche, but it's almost like they're setting her up with an underdog story. Mm. And I think that's why I'm drawn to her, because I want to see her succeed. I know she's probably going to do some things later on in the season, or I assume at least that I'm going to be like, oh, girl, this is not what we should be doing. And I'll deal with that in in that moment. (laughs) But for now, yeah. And Blevin right off the back, like I mentioned before, he's just 
he has so much animosity towards her, but it's that kind of passive animosity of, well, you shouldn't overstep your bounds. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm rooting for her to get what she wants. And on top of that, I mean, in general, we see in these three episodes, she recognizes what's going on. Mm -hmm. She's she's so smart and she calls out in her conversations to her assistant. There's things going on. I'm noticing these kind of similar situations happening in different places. Her assistant even says it's too random to be random. Mm -hmm. We see her go to part of gas and bring this up. And he's like, well, we only use hard cold data. So unless you have that. I don't care, essentially. And something about the line, when they are researching the data and we see them, and she says to her assistant, I don't know what I'm doing. Something about that, I don't know what it was, just the context of the scene humanized her a bit more to me, because we're so used to the Imperials being, I mean, other than like the little bumbling Imperial, you know, officers who are just there essentially to, to be trampled over. Normally, our strong Imperial officers, which she's set up to be, we don't see them have doubts. They're usually so pompous and, you know, they're always right. And we see her in that scene doubting herself. So not only do we see her doubting herself, she's got a bunch of things up against her from the get go. Mm. And I think that's why I'm drawn to the character so much that and I mean, Denise Goff's acting as the character. It's such a specific character and she's so distinct, even though she's brand new. Yeah. I mean, how many episodes have we seen this woman in? Maybe five at the most. She's already made a huge mark on the series to me, and I think it's only going to get it's only going to get more intense as the series goes on. So like I said before, I hope I don't eat my words and being a dead or stand. Like I said, she's my problematic bad girl. I might even cheer depending on what she does. If she ends up going to Ferrix and really causing some issues, then I don't know how I'll feel at that point. But we'll cross that bridge when we get there. (laughs) <laughs> they're gonna pit didra against bix and then we'll have to see where your allegiances lie i was scared you were gonna say didra against marva and then i said i was gonna say i'd probably cry yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i do think like the she I, it's incredible acting everyone in the show is amazing and with that character is incredible and little lines like that like i don't know what i'm doing just makes it so relatable yeah, like you're saying, it brings us in. It's just incredible how they've gotten us there. They like have gotten us on her side a little bit that we're rooting for her. You know, part of it is like her assistant says, I think about the Navy. I wouldn't trust anything coming out of there. They wouldn't admit if there's a problem. You know, Blevin, they, they allude to Blevin not wanting her to have the info. He doesn't want her to find any like incompetencies or flaws under him with his personnel. So we're getting this maybe theme of like not trusting the reports, obviously people not wanting anyone to find their mistakes, sweeping the murder of the corpos under the rug because of what it would mean for the corpos on Morlana one to protect themselves. Rip. Which makes it like so far the only two people doing the right thing for the Empire are Deidre and Cyril. And it's really interesting to think about because I make it it makes you root for the bad guys that are doing the best thing for the Empire when we should be rooting for like Blevin and all of the bad guys who are like making the Empire its own worst enemy. Yeah. What it means going forward rooting for her is that we're rooting for the success of the Empire. (laughs) 
which which is a trick they've tricked us and and it, it's just another incredible maybe another incredible feat of the storytelling of this show <laughs> the writing the storytelling the character development all those gray areas i mean we've got our group of antagonists and we're literally picking the good antagonists and our like kind of moral high ground of the good antagonists and then the bad yeah. ones so who are the good guy antagonists <laughs> that I'm rooting for? Oh, man. It's crazy. Yeah. Okay, yeah. A couple more things. One I just wanted to point out, I did not notice until this last time I watched it. Miro and her assistant, after the initial meeting, they're like reviewing, they're trying to find the Starpath unit. And her assistant has his little data pad and he's going through it and he says, there's a raw transmission in there somewhere. Do you think that that's Bix calling Luthen? Is that like the breadcrumb that is going to lead them to to maybe figuring out that Luthen has something to do with this? No, I think that's really great speculation. And I didn't ever miss that line, but I never really read into it because, you know, the they say all these little things <laughs> with these fancy words and it, it's just a part of the world. And but some of those things like you did when you rewatched it, you have to kind of read into it and think, well, hmm. What could that be? I think that's a really good idea, too, because that would make a lot of sense. I think in general, you know, the Morlana group, when they were there, they knew Bix was running away. So I'm sure they have that on record somewhere. Mm. The Empire's taken over their entire operation. So I don't think the Empire's going to leave her alone either. Yeah. I think they're eventually going to come say, hey, what's going on? And if if this raw transmission, like you're speculating, could be communication between Luthen and Bix, I mean, we know that it's her contact. So it's not like she's never spoken to him before this instance with Cassian. Mm -hmm. There could be multiple transmissions that they could trace back at that point. And then who knows what could happen from there. I think that's a really good idea, actually. Thanks. I did it. I had a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> I don't know how familiar you are with Knights of the Old Republic. I can't remember if you played any of either game or not. I played a little bit of the first one. I know that's like a cancelable offense in the Star Wars community. but uh, I'm not trying to cancel you on your own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but I will. <laughs> Anyways, the Kawadi Signet Necklace. That Luthen gives Cassian, you know, as we see it through this this entire arc, there's some importance to it. We later see Skeen bring it up and be like, oh, my God, he's got this special crystal. I love the tie in when Luthen gives Cassian the necklace, the Kawadi signet, and he says it celebrates. I think it's it celebrates the end of the Rakatan invaders. And I just love that line tying into KOTOR, because if you haven't played KOTOR, the Rakatans are known as the Builders, and they, spoiler alert, they built all the little star maps around the galaxy. Uh, they built the Star Forge, which is a huge, I won't go into it too much, but it's a, it's a large space station factory thing that they have in the game. So just, I mean, we know KOTOR's not canon per se. We've seen little canonizations here and there of things from the game, like with Revan. Mm and the Sith Troopers from episode uh, nine. But I just love that little tie-in because as I kind of mentioned earlier, 
talking about, oh, the raw transmission and just kind of those little things. Oh, it's a Kawadi Signet celebrating the end of the Rakatan Invaders. Like somebody who's casual or hasn't played KOTOR is just going to be like, oh, that's just some Star Wars thing from a long time ago, whatever. But for somebody like me who has played KOTOR that's a massive fan, because I know everything <laughs> about it, uh, <laughs> as I've proven. Definitely um, didn't have to Google anything. No Wikipedia here. It's just really exciting to get those little, just those little sprinkles of things from the universe in there. So I, I just thought that was a super interesting piece that they put in there. They didn't have to include that. They could have just said it was a kyber crystal. Most people are going to know what a kyber crystal is. Mm. This was just something with a little more razzle dazzle. <laughs> and as we know from his transformation, Luthen does like a little bit of razzle dazzle. The smile, the gestures, he does like a little bit of razzle-dazzle. Everyone was talking about it when he made that transformation and loved seeing him become that character. It was real fun to see. I liked seeing it, but I also didn't like it. <laughs> like, the, like you and I talked about last time, the idea that he is this elite, affluent member of the Empire. I mean, he's benefiting now, and in this episode, we see his shop which is not only benefiting from the Empire, but benefiting from a lot of other peoples out in the galaxy. I mean, appearance-wise, I just found it jarring. And not, not in a bad way, but not in a good way. Mm -hmm. Like, it was hilarious, sure. That whole scene of him just essentially getting dolled up, going from Luthen Rael to Miss Luthen Rael <laughs> <laughs> of Coruscant. But it, yeah, it was just kind of jarring seeing the, the difference in character. And then, of course, like you just mentioned, all the things behind that, mm -hmm. just being this member or even if he's not necessarily a member of the high society, catering to that high society mm -hmm. that is benefiting from the empire. He's got all these artifacts probably stolen from all these indigenous species of these planets mm -hmm. from the empire, most likely after they've taken over and all these different high society people buying them as just nice decorations for their home. You were talking about the Kawadi signet as a fun little Easter egg. What did you think of the rest of the Easter eggs in his shop? So I have to point out right off the bat, the Gungan energy shield. Mm. We talked about this when we last talked about what we wanted to see in the series. I want some damn Gungans. <laughs> I don't care if they're in the background. So the energy shield was such a nice little Easter egg. I mean, there's tons in there. We've got the Gungan energy shield. We've got the very similar to Star Killer Sith Stalker armor mm -hmm. helmet. That's another little thing like the Kawadi Signet. It, it's something you would never expect to see or brought up in a live action show. That's from a game and a not canon game at that. So just having little things like that. There's the stones with the, the Mortis Gods, uh, similar to what we saw in the Lothal Temple. That was like my number one Easter egg. Same. Because we've talked about this. We're huge animation fans. And the Mortis Gods, not only were they in Clone Wars, but of course they brought him back for Rebels. Even, you know, it was just a photo, but still. I never expected to see anything related to that in live action. Because it's such a, such an out there kind of thing. 100%. Kind of the weirdness of the Force. But we love that kind yeah. of stuff. So seeing that brought into like the big, big screen live action Star Wars show. I thought of another one that we didn't mention after I said we love animation. The Calicori. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, Calicori. yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
I forgot. Actually, I didn't even see that one. I don't know if, if it was in your video or someone else's video I was watching. But that kind of goes back to talking about stealing things from yeah. different planets and what he has in his shop. Like that's a that's an ancestral piece of Twi'lek history, if you think about it. And he's just selling it in his shop. Yeah, that might be the biggest artifact there that we know sort of the most of what it means to the people. And that's like the biggest indicator of that whole setup being wrong. Yeah. We finally get to see Mon Mothma, which we have not talked about at all yet, even though it was one of our predictions for this episode. The last time we spoke did not happen the way we anticipated but i mean i could spend hours talking about mon mothma i would love for a mon mothma show after this everything about mon mothma has always been so stoic she's strong and you know she's the senator who fights for the people and fights for what's right she's the leader of the rebellion and <laughs> kind of touching on when she first goes to luthan's shop when she first goes in there, all the pleasantries and whatnot. And then when they go into the back and they let that guard down and he's like, do you have the money or not? Right. Essentially, she explains her situation and says, you know, no one's under as much pressure as I am. No one's more at risk. It's crazy. Just just even in that scene. I mean, of course, we know that a, a major leader of a movement is going to be under some stress. The way that Genevieve O'Reilly just conveys it, just the way she she says those statements, she says she feels like I'm under siege. Mm. It's really intense and it, it's conveyed so well. So in general with Mon Mothma, it, it's just so crazy the different sides of her that we get to see within this episode. Uh, we get to see kind of almost what's going on inside of her head as the leader she'll eventually become mm -hmm. and where she's at with it, which is not in a very... I wouldn't necessarily say a confident position. Yeah. After a long day, probably at the Senate, she stopped at Luthen's office. She's stressing about getting him the money. She comes home. We see her take off, you know, her jewelry. So I'm sure she just wants to relax. And then <laughs> we meet her lovely husband. And on top of Perrin just being horrible, <laughs> he says, oh, I'm, I'm having a dinner. We're having a dinner tonight. Don't you remember? Like, I put it on your calendar. And I'm just like, this poor Mon Mothma, we just saw her stressing out with Luthen. She just came home for the day. She just wants to have, like, a gin martini <laughs> and just relax. And now she has to have a dinner. But not only is her dinner going to be with the governor of Chandrilla, but there's also going to be some fun guests there. Yeah, fun being the term that Perrin uses to describe these people. Like, they're gonna, they're fun. You're gonna be at the boring end of the table. Yeah. I was just like, how are you gonna invite this, your wife's political rivals, or as she says, the people who work to stop everything that she tries to put into motion to dinner, then say they're fun, yeah. and then say, well, don't worry. I'm sitting you at the other end of the table so you don't have to deal with it. We're just, you know, going to sit sit over here and have a good time. Yeah. And she even goes as far to say, we're having dinner. We're eating food. Well, the people you're inviting are cutting off food from the Gormans. Oh, I guess we'll 
laugh about that during the third course or something, she says. Mm-hmm. We do get to see pretty deeply into Mon Mothma's life, which was great and new and something we've never seen before. It's also heartbreaking because she doesn't get a minute. She doesn't get a minute. She's just like, she goes to Luthen, and like you said, there's such an emotional gravity to her, not only her acting, but what's, what's actually happening to the character in that world. You know, being under siege, replacing her driver, replacing everyone at the bank. She can't access her family money. And then going home to that, she's just, just hugely immense emotional role that this character has become, which is, like you were saying, such a new perspective. Yeah. I mean, this is, I feel like we've peeled back the curtain. Mm -hmm. We've literally peeled back the white blanket cloak to our glamorized, yesified Mon Mothma, who doesn't have a supportive family life, yeah. which is really sad to see. So let's get into The Axe Forgets, episode five, The Axe Forgets. We get to see Cassian and Skeen have a little interaction. Skeen, allegedly Vel told Skeen to go through Cassian's stuff. And then they have their conversation about kind of setting them up as similar maybe some similar trials through their lives and Skeen says the line the axe forgets but the tree remembers I think it was just a really powerful way to start the episode right like this show obviously isn't pulling any punches but it just comes out hard I love that quote a lot as well too it really stuck out to me from the beginning and I completely agree it really set up kind of everything that was to come and we see it play out through the episode. Yeah. Okay, but then we get our first real interaction with my favorite character, Nemec. Mm. And we get to find out what Nemec's all about, which I really loved. I really loved that speech. I've said it on this podcast before, and I've said it on Twitter, how much I love that speech and how, again, it's incredible from the character and also what we can pull from it from the real world and also the writing. What did you think of Nemec? when we first sit down and have this interaction with him. Well, after my initial thoughts of homosexual, then I thought <laughs> he has a lot to say. He puts a lot of things into perspective in general. Like we learn about Skeen, Skeen's just fighting for revenge. Nemec's fighting for more of a purpose, I would say, yeah. in the sense of he has ideals. He looks at things from a more philosophical sense. I love the way that he points out in his speech to Cassian that with the technology, the people of the galaxy don't even remember how to use some of the older technology pre-Empire. And that's partially to the Empire's doing because the Empire wants them to have no choice but to rely on them. Nemec literally has a physical example there and says when he brings it out, Cassian points out, oh, that's old. And he's like, yeah, but this still works. Mm -hmm. It doesn't rely on the Empire at all. And it's just a great kind of symbol for everything he talks about as well. Yeah. And I think it really puts language to the rebellion that we've never had before. Like there's always been the rebellion and there's always been good versus evil in this story. You know, the Empire is always so confident and thinking that they're just a random cells of insurgent activity. And here's the actual language that brings people into the cause. Nemec wants to be that, wants to be part of that glue that, that brings all of these people together and makes them rise up. 
I don't know. We've had Star Wars for so long and we've had the battle that goes on in Star Wars for so long. But to actually sit down now in 2022 and put language to it, I think was very like very eye opening and very powerful and very like, oh, yeah, this is what like they're fighting for. And I feel bad saying this, but I almost feel like he's a little bit too important to be on this kind of suicide mission <laughs> because I'm, I'm like, <clears throat> if only more people could hear him speak and you know we get the introduction of the manifesto mm -hmm. which fingers crossed that will really play more into at least with cassian mm -hmm. and his kind of turn but he's giving such great information just like the building blocks of the principles of the rebellion right. and i think it's more aligned too to the mon mothma side of thinking versus the all-out war let's attack you need a bit of that too obviously mm -hmm. and we know nemec has a bit of that as well yeah, going back to the importance of him, maybe he shouldn't be there because he's too important. I think that goes to something that he says later about Clem saying, what's the role of mercenaries in the galactic fight for independence? And like, what's the role of philosophers like Nemec? It's something that I think he thinks about, like philosophers are a tool. Can he be that person and sit on the sidelines and just write? No, he needs to be in the fight, actually, like, combating oppression. Something else that happens this episode is that we're introduced to Lieutenant Gorn, who's, like, the Imperial officer helping Vel's rebels take the garrison in Aldani. Cassian's even like, can we trust this guy? And then we learn more about him. A little bit later in this episode, Vel is explaining Gorn's history to Cassian. He fell in love with a Donny woman, and then she was killed at the hands of the Empire, and then he lost his taste for the Empire, which I thought was very interesting in relation to the title of the episode. The more that goes on, the more you can see, obviously Gorn's really fed up with the Empire and holds some kind of guilt with being part of that force. So... Perhaps a little bit of him being part of the axe that remembers the trees. So the biggest thing about Gorn that surprised me, and when we first meet him, you know, I understand Cassian's hesitancy because he's he comes in his Imperial officer getup, and for all intents and purposes, he's some random Imperial that's like, hey, what are you guys doing out here? Mm -hmm. But as we get to know him more, and as we see in episode five as we kind of get a peek into what he does around the base. He treads this uh, kind of weird line where he's stern. But if you think about it and think about him versus like other Imperial lieutenants, he's also very forgiving. He's like, why isn't the monument cleaned up? And the people are like, oh, well, you know, the officers had to go move the commandant's wife's furniture. He's even like, I'll be back in an hour. Please make sure not that it's finished but that it looks better than it does now, that you've made progress on it. And it's it's little things like that, even as we learn when it comes to, I, I think it's painting one of the, some machine or within the base itself. And and they're even like, oh, well, sorry, you know, we really want to watch the eye, so please don't make us paint it throughout the night. Please don't make us deal with it tomorrow. We really want to watch the yeah. eye. And he's even like, okay. I uh. do think that was a trick, though. Gorn tricking oh, them sure. into saying that it's their idea to be outside so that they're not in there when Vel's team shows up. He's like, I'm going to make you stay inside. And they're like, we want to see the eyes like, oh, all right, if you insist. But he needs no people to be in there. 
Yeah, and I think that kind of goes along with just in general, the way he plays it. For me, at least, watching him kind of go through the role of Imperial Lieutenant, it was just such a weird line that he kind of walked in there where he was either being stern, but still being a bit nice to the people under him or tricking them into being like, oh, yay, he's going to let us go watch the eye when actually, no, I want you out of here. But I want you to think, you know, it was because you requested it or you did your work and this is your reward. And even the line, something that stood out to me, too, is the the comms guy. They're standing on top of the dam. When they when they go and talk up there, he says to Gorn, oh, could you imagine there being a bunch of Aldani people out here? And Gorn's like, actually, yeah, I can. <laughs> because he lived it. And I, I think while he was with the woman that he fell in love with, he probably got immersed into their culture. I mean, we learn in episode six that he's essentially the translator mm -hmm. between the Aldani people and the Commandant. And, you know, their small interaction. But in his time with whoever that Aldani woman was, I think, like you said, he kind of learned about the trees, the Aldani people. He learned their culture. He recognized what he and the Empire as the Axe were doing to these people. There were so many different things with Gorn, and we don't get a ton of him on screen compared to other characters. But even so, there's still a lot there. Yeah. And I think it really shows when the heist is on when we're undergoing the actual heist right beforehand setting it up. You can see them getting closer and closer and they focus on Gorn a lot in those scenes and not a beat of sweat, no nervousness whatsoever, just his everyday confident self. Like he is 100% confident that he should be doing this, that he's like the least nervous out of everyone there with again, maybe a little bit like Mon Mothma, the most at risk. Talking about getting into the heist, let's get into episode six. The Eye starts off with another great conversation between Cassian and Nemec. Like I said before, Nemec discussing the roles of mercenaries in the galactic fight for freedom. And then, of course, Cassian says, you'll sleep when it's done, which the minute I heard that come out of his mouth, I was like, well, that's that then. Yeah, he's going to be sleeping well, um, just not in the way Cassian yeah. meant. Here's something I noticed in this episode upon rewatch is that when we see the Aldani people marching up to the Sacred Valley, they, there's no kids. Like, there's some teenagers, but there's no, like, new Aldani people among the crowd. So I'm, I'm wondering if this is pointing more to sort of the decline of the Aldani people in response to the Empire, you know, uh, these people that have been displaced and are now on the brink of extinction. You know what that makes me think of, though? And this, I just had like a explosion in my head. So the Commandant talks about setting up shelters and taverns on mm -hmm. the way. And at first I was like, oh, that's for stragglers or for people who were like, oh, well, you know, it's a really long hike and we could just sit here or we're getting drunk in the tavern. And, you know, they left in the morning and we're hungover, so we're not leaving. Mm -hmm. But then I thought to myself, what if these people were bringing their children? How well are these children going to do on this mm -hmm. long trek? the sacred valley the parent of said child may be more inclined to stop mm -hmm. because their kid can't make it or they're just not cooperating well and in doing so taking the new generation of the aldani people and removing their culture mm. from them because it won't they won't have gone to see we don't know how many times they will have seen the eye of aldani they may not care yeah. as they get older 
And then there goes the Aldani culture. And we know we know from the commandant's conversation with the colonel that the Aldani people won't be allowed up there anymore. The colonel that's there says, do they have any idea this will be the last time they'll be allowed up here? And J-Hold says, no, there's no profit in that. That's a really good point. It's stripping away their culture. The, the kids won't get up there to see it. And this could very well be the last time until Cummin and J-Hold also says, ultimately they'll return. You'll need plenty of arms and legs to build what you've got planned. So until they're slaves, literally, like the, the mm-hmm. he's speaking about enslaving these people to build the airbase or whatever they're putting there, until that time, they will not be allowed to return to their sacred valley. Honestly, rewatching it, um, each time I've rewatched it, listening to the commandant speak about them just gets more infuriating yeah. every single time. And in general, like I had kind of mentioned in taking their culture away from the new generation that could be growing up we've touched on it in separate conversations but it, it it's so so similar to everything we've seen in the real world with indigenous cultures mm-hmm. in general it's so clearly pulling from that and applying it with you know a star wars kind of overlay i don't want to say i loved seeing it because obviously it was infuriating to see but i liked the way that they did it and in general, it, it did just make everything so much more infuriating seeing how they were being treated. And like you mentioned, the oh, do they know this is the last time that they can come mm-hmm. here? No, but they don't need to know. Ah, oh, it's just so crazy. Just the way the Empire deals with it. So as we're going forward here, we want to talk about Vel and Sinta. Vel and Sinta go off on their own to take down the communications. When they meet back up with everybody, Sinta saves the day. It's our first bait and switch, our first Nemec's death bait and switch of the episode. Mm. We could make it a drinking game with the amount of times they pulled that on <laughs> us this episode. And then we have a moment in the comms room of Vel and Sinta holding hands before splitting up during the rest of the mission. And Vel saying, promise me you'll be okay. Or So do we want to go into a little bit about Vel and Cinta and their relationship? Well, this may be an unpopular opinion. I think that the interaction in the room before they kind of split off while Vel leaves her and essentially says her goodbye for now. I thought it fit the moment really well. The intensity of the mission that they were on, I don't think they had time to sit and, you know, make out for a couple minutes in front of their prisoners. They were on a time crunch. Mm -hmm. I thought the handhold was very intimate. It wasn't like a, oh, they touched hands and we're going to cut the camera away immediately. It lingered on the Mm handholding. Vel gets right up in her face. You can see the intensity and the emotion in her eyes saying, like, tell me you'll be all right. It's essentially like a please reassure me you will be okay, so that I do not have to worry about you, even though I'm going to horribly worry about Mm. you. Please just tell me it's going to be all right. That's what I took from it. And well, I still have my gripes about them as a couple and how they're being portrayed versus maybe like other cishet couples in the series. In that moment, I enjoyed what we got. And I, I felt the emotion from them. More from Vel, too, in that moment. And as we learned in the episode, it seems like uh, Cinta can keep it together under pressure a little bit better than Vel can. So I, I think that that was also kind of a great thing and showing how their relationship works, too. Mm. Especially when they're on the bridge getting ready to jump down and Cinta's like, call it. She's like, girl, let's go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really like Cinta. 
Yeah, I don't really know what else to say from a straight white guy perspective here. <laughs> well, then let me let me play podcast host sure. for a second then. So take your significant other. Would you feel the need to have a little elongated kiss before you go if y'all are on a time limit? Would that be the first thing that you think about? And it's okay if it is. I think it depends on the relationship. Sure. Here's what I'd say. I didn't even think of a time limit, but here's what I would say. In a moment like that, the idea would be to not let your enemy know that the person you're leaving behind can be used against you. Like, yes, you're part of a team, but if you show maybe a stronger connection than that, then that person will be a target for your enemy to get to you or to take down the team. So that's what I, I guess that's my answer. So no, I wouldn't because I, I wouldn't want the enemy or the hostages in case they got out to see that we have that connection so that they would like take it out on her or uh, use her to get to the rest of the team. I mean, that's quintessential Star Wars right there. You're going to take that emotional attachment. Palpatine says, oh, Padme's your weakness. Right. We're going to cut that real quick. Right. That being said, certainly like the scene right before we jump off of a bridge together, I might take the time to to have a kiss to be like, hey, in case this goes wrong or in case we go splat. I I completely agree with you. I want to see them kiss. I think it's deserved and I think it's a disservice to queer representation if they do not, especially from what we've seen with, you know, Bix and her bra in the bed. Yeah. Do I think that they needed to have proclaim their love right in that moment? I didn't even think about the fact of, yeah, they could use this against you. If your hostages get out, the four of them against this one person, you don't know what could happen. Mm -hmm. On the bridge, I could definitely see the obnoxious, like, get it together, girl. Calm me down with a kiss. Let's go. Yeah. Or, hey, in case we die in this mission together and this is our last, you know, real moment together. Here's something else I think this show is doing that's like breaking a Star Wars rule. In the process of loading up what I call the Hot Mess Express, as they're loading all of the, like, payroll. So shit hits the fan and Gorn gets shot and Tamarin gets shot. So I think that this is just reinforcing the idea that this show is saying there's no room for redemption in all Star Wars stories. Gorn is in the middle of, like, he's into redemption. We know Tamarin is an ex-stormtrooper and they both get shot. Tim was probably one of the most likely candidates to like be able to have a redemption story like Star Wars redemption arc in the show and he gets shot the show is like taking out people who are I think classically in Star Wars would have gotten a redemption story we're breaking a rule here I think very specifically saying hey like you said the like morally gray area is saying hey you know not everyone gets redeemed this isn't that kind of story and this isn't that kind of Star Wars I definitely I like what you what you're saying. I think with Tim specifically, that was like the easiest redemption setup. Right. If he didn't die. Mm -hmm. But they said, no, nope, we're cutting him out right away. In general, with this show, I feel like it's almost it's doing two things within the show and within Star Wars themes as a whole. And the best example with this is we talked about earlier is Mon Mothma. It's peeling back, almost like peeling back the curtain. We're seeing the the more ruthless side of the rebellion, the more violent side of the rebellion, which were always painted as the good guys. We're seeing Mon Mothma, the stoic leader of the rebellion, 
peeled back mm. and essentially has no support from anybody at this current time. She's got this horrible family life. They don't really pay her any mind because they think she don't pay them any mind. Yeah. And it's it's little things like that where we're just kind of seeing the things that are going on also behind the scenes. It's it, There's a lot of great things that I feel like this show is doing so far. But the, the biggest thing that I've really enjoyed is really getting into the nitty gritty, mm. which I feel like sometimes things were a little too, you know, wrapped in a bow and nice. We didn't get to see what was really going on in the inside and get a peek behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can end this without talking about the actual eye, the actual event of the episode. You know, they describe it early on in this arc, but then finally get to see it. What an incredible, this show just looks incredible. Being able to see that, I know in your video you talked about, one of your earlier videos you talked about really hoping that we're still there to see this event. The eye, I mean, like you said, I said in my video, I hope we're there to see it. It blew me away as well. I didn't expect it to be its own event outside of the heist itself. Mm. The eye in the episode was also just kind of its own thing that was there. And I think it added to the heist as it was supposed to do within the story. But visually, uh, it just made things so much more intense and the lighting was beautiful. I don't know what I expected, but this definitely exceeded my expectations. I think the show is showing the best combination Mm. of taking physical sets and the volume and putting them together and seeing how beautiful things can look. Yeah, you do bring up a good point about it being intense. I guess it's a very, now that I think about it, it's a very Star Wars solo and the Kessel Run type thing, Mm -hmm. but it just doesn't give us a minute to relax. Like there's such layered excitement. There's no chance of sitting back for a second. And you're still at the edge of your seat stressing since you've been from the beginning of the episode on top of all of that. It's almost like a mental overload with the stress and then the beauty of the eye itself. Yeah, the eye are actually all our neurons firing, trying to trying to take it all in. <laughs> Is there anything you want to see in future episodes? Do you have any expectations based on what we've seen so far? Two things. Well, I guess I'll say Jar Jar. If only. Unfortunately, I don't expect to see him, but it'll be a pleasant surprise if so. Yeah. What I expect to see is Saw Gerrera. Mm. I think we're going to get some kind of Saw Gerrera arc, and I feel like it's been kept very under wraps. So I think we're going to get something intense there. And Luthen's already hinted towards the more gritty side of things to come in episode seven. So I don't imagine that's going to go well, especially with what we know about Saw. Um, and we're obviously going to get the prison break. Cassian's going to prison. What I want to see, and I don't even know if we have time for this in the in the series left, but I'd really love a Mon Mothma and Luthen-centric episode, or maybe just a portion of the episode. Take time a little bit away from Cassian because he's just going to jail. Mm-hmm. He can sit in jail for maybe a day or two, and we'll follow around some of our other characters because I always get little pieces of them, and I always just want a little bit yeah. more. That's why... In general, those scenes with Mon Mothma and Tay in episode seven, I was just living for them because it was such a good, like, it was meaty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was some meaty Mothma time. And <laughs> well, that's I, the title I really of the episode. The meaty Mothma hour. <laughs> meaty Mothma time. God, the more I say it, the more disgusting. Yeah, it's not, it's gross. <laughs> well, that's what I'm looking for. 
All right. Well, I think that's everything. Scotty, would you plug your stuff one last time on our way out here? I will include all of Scotty's stuff, including their YouTube reviews of these episodes in the description. Yeah, I, I love to plug my stuff, so I will definitely let you know where to find me. You can find me on YouTube under Scotty Holiday 2 and on Twitter at Scotty Holiday 2 and on Instagram at Scotty Holiday 2. Follow me for more Star Wars content from a queer perspective. Awesome. Thanks so much, Scotty. Really appreciate you being here again. And yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for having me.